So here's a question. What do you do when you're in over your head? Could be in business, could be in managing life, could be at work or at home or at school, or it could be all of the above, any one of the areas you're trying to juggle, but you're in way over your head. You're outmatched and you're outgunned. What do you do? And just to be clear, I'm not talking here about the normal stuff in life where you simply come up with a new plan. We all know that drill, don't we? We evaluate the situation, what's been done, what's worked, what hasn't, strengths, weaknesses, pros, cons. We assess, we modify, and we implement. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about situations when you're in way over your head and you realize you have no chance of success in and of yourself. In fact, victory is impossible. What do you do then? Well, I'll tell you what you do. You bring in a champion, right? You bring in someone outside of yourself who's willing to fight in your place. And we've got examples of this all over the place, don't we? I mean, just think about your kids. What do your kids do when they have issues with their siblings? Well, they call in their parents. Or how about a customer with a company? They call in the manager. How about the Chicago Bulls? 1984, when they were the worst team in basketball, what did they do? They called in Michael Jordan. Yes, they did. How about the armed forces? What do, do, what do they do when they're outmatched and outgunned? Well, they call in the Green Berets or the Navy SEALs. Or if for some reason our national crisis happens in Gotham City, then we get on the phone and we call Commissioner Gordon and we call in who? Batman and Robin. Right? You hear what I'm saying? When you're in way over your head, outmatched and outgunned, what you need is a champion. You need a savior. And that's exactly what we're going to find as we kick off our summer sermon series. Twelve reasons Jesus came to die. So essentially, we're looking to our champion, to the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. And we're going to see him all the way from Genesis to Revelation, including this morning. Because as a result of the devil's lies and Adam's sins, we're all enslaved to disobedience. So Adam's sin ignited a life and death struggle between right and wrong, good and evil. But God, in the midst of all of that, promised salvation. Genesis 3.15. Through a second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose substitutionary death on the cross not only crushes Satan's head, but provides us with eternal life and the power that we need, we desperately need, to live for God's glory. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, page 3. I also want to encourage you to grab my outline from your bulletin. As you can see, the title of my sermon is Reason Number One, Why Jesus Came to Die, to Crush Satan's Head. As you're turning, let me begin with number one, the context of the promise. 
And a paradise promised. Paradise provided. You need to know that we didn't start out in this mess. Instead, God provided a, a glorious paradise for us to enjoy. If you spend any time in Genesis 1 and 2, then you, that will become abundantly clear. Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How is the earth described? It's formless and it's void. So how does God remedy the situation? Well, first he forms the earth. That's days 1, 2, and 3. And then he fills the earth. That's days 4, 5, and 6. And he does that with perfect correspondence. So there's a connection between day one and day four, because out of darkness, God said, let there be light day one, but then on day four, he makes the sun and the moon and the stars to rule the light. Day two, God forms the sky, separating the waters above from the waters below. Then on the corresponding day five, he fills the sky with birds and the waters with fish. Day three, God forms the earth and separates the water from the dry land and brings forth vegetation. Corresponding day six, he fills the earth with every kind of animal and mankind. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In his image, he created them male and female. He created them. Mankind is the pinnacle of creation. And how does the Bible summarize God's creation? Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It's paradise. That's the best way to describe the Garden of Eden. It's A, paradise provided, which brings us to B, paradise lost. If you would, go ahead and follow along as I read our passage for this morning, verses 1 to 15 in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now let's start by looking at number one, the devil's lies. Because there's a method to his madness, a, a strategy that we should know, including masquerading around as a serpent. But be clear, this is the devil who says to the woman in verse 1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Actually, devil, God didn't say that. What did he say? Well, it's recorded right here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Look at it with me. And the Lord God commanded the man. Now, don't miss that, because God didn't say anything to the woman. In fact, the woman wasn't even created yet. She's created out a man in verses 18 to 24. So the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what exactly is the devil doing? Well, he's questioning the goodness of God, isn't he? Because God in creation is abundantly kind and he's abundantly generous. He's provided this glorious paradise. And he says to them, you may eat of every tree of the garden. Every tree. Anyone, <laughs> pick a tree, eat, enjoy it. He's so abundantly generous. Every single tree. But this one tree. Which, by the way, brings death. From that tree, you may not eat. Because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So the devil questions the goodness of God. And actually causes the woman to doubt God and think differently about who God is and what God has promised. And you hear it in verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. She says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. God didn't say that, did he? You see it already. She's doubting God. And the devil immediately jumps on the opening with an outright lie. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. Let me be clear. What's the devil's strategy when he lies to us? Two things. He makes us question the goodness of God, and he makes us question the promises of God. Because God's been unbelievably generous in creation, placed Adam and Eve in paradise, given them everything they need and absolutely everything to enjoy. So there's not a single thing that he's withholding from them until the devil lies. And please be clear, the problem with our world today is not simply, number one, that the devil lied or that he continues to lie. But number two, that man sinned. And I specifically say the man sinned because the command was not spoken to the woman but to the man 
who, by the way, is standing right there, right next to the woman when all of this is taking place. So Adam's right there, and he knows it's wrong. Why does he know it's wrong? Because God told him, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And yet he lets the woman take and eat. And there's nothing new under the sun, is there? The same things that tempted Adam and Eve are the same things that tempt us today. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit, and she ate. And she gave also to her husband. She didn't throw the apple. <laughs> she, she handed it to him. He's right there next to her. And he ate. By the way, we don't know if it's an apple or not. It's a fruit. So don't, some of you after the service will say, it doesn't say apple. It doesn't. It's just a fruit. But he's right there. Right? And there's nothing new under the sun. 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here it is, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its lusts, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the woman is tempted and the man sins because Adam is the one who disobeys God's command. And what's the result? Well, just like God promised. Number three, the people died. And of course, we get this funny little interaction between Adam, Eve, and God because they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which causes them to hide. Why do they hide? Because they've sinned. So God calls out to them, not because he doesn't know where they are. God knows all things, but he calls out to them to highlight their sin and the consequences of it because Adam and Eve are afraid and they're hiding, which means there's guilt and there's shame. And how exactly do they respond when God asks them this unbelievably straightforward, simple question. Verse 11, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? What do they do? How do they respond? They blame shift, don't they? So rather than simply taking ownership for their sin, confessing to God that they've sinned and done what is evil in his sight, instead they blame shift. The man blames the woman. Verse 12, this woman whom you, God, gave me. As if God's somehow the, the problem. And the woman blames the devil. Verse 13, the serpent deceived me. Now, quick application. Let's learn from Adam and Eve and own our sin before God. He already knows all things. So blaming others for what is clearly our fault doesn't help, does it? It only makes things worse because then you've got sin upon sin, right? Just like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, right? Sin upon sin, weight upon weight, until the burden on his back is so unbearable. Which is why 1 John 1 says, if we confess our sins... 
God is faithful and God is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. He's faithful and just to take the burden off of our backs. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. So please, listen to me. Own your sin. Don't blame shift. Repent. Believe in Jesus. Two main reasons why Jesus came to die. To save you from your sin and to give you the hope of eternal life. Otherwise, the consequence is death. And you see that picture right here in Genesis. Number three, the people die. Now you might say, what are you talking about? Adam and Eve are the first people highlighted in Genesis chapter four. So surely they didn't die. But that's a misunderstanding of death. Because the wages of sin is death. Yes, but it's both physical death and it's spiritual death. So as a result of Adam's sin, physical death enters the world and people start dying physically with shorter lifespans. But Adam and Eve also died spiritually because God immediately kicked them out of the garden, didn't he? Away from his presence. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 1.9 gives us the clearest picture of spiritual death and as a result, the clearest picture of hell when it says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. How? Away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Which means God's promise in Genesis 2.17 was true. And Adam and Eve immediately died. They were cast out of God's presence. But not before C, a promise was given. Here's the number one reason why Jesus came to die. To crush Satan's head. Just look at what God says in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, the devil's offspring, the devil's seed, and her offspring, the woman's offspring, the woman's seed. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you, devil, shall bruise his heel. Now, a couple of things to grab before we move on. The first is that God's clearly promising a mortal blow to the devil. But it's not without impact to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God says the seed of the woman will bruise or crush the devil's head, whereas the devil will only bruise or crush his heel. So it's the location of the blow that distinguishes the severity and the success of the attack, not the verb. Because in the midst of this conflict, both will be bruised, right? Both will be crushed. But God promises that Jesus will crush Satan's head, whereas the devil will only crush his heel. And as we'll see in just a moment, all of that happens at the cross, where Jesus conquers sin, death, and the devil when he delivers the mortal wound. But it it will cost him, right? That's the reality of his death, burial, and resurrection. But second, notice how God also promises enmity, right? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. 
So there's a battle raging between those who love God and the things of God and those who hate God and the people of God. And we see that battle raging all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And the truth is, it's still raging today. So as we transition from number one, the context of the promise, to number two, the fulfillment of the promise, I want to quickly skip through the Old Testament, or, or at least I'm going to try to quickly skip through the Old Testament and show you just a couple of times in which, A, Jesus is foreshadowed in and through the Old Testament. But it's not just Jesus. Right? It's the enmity that exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, including the promise that Satan's head will be crushed through a representative head, through a champion. If you would, go ahead and flip forward to Judges chapter 4. Judges 4, page 203, if you're using one of our Bibles. There's a lot of passages listed in number 2, aren't there? Anybody nervous? Okay, as you're turning, let me fill you in on the context. Book of Judges records seven cycles in which Israel sins against the Lord, is enslaved to a foreign power, cries out for a deliverer, for a judge, a savior, a champion, and God provides. So Judges 4, verse 1, if you're there, starts out by saying, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud, the second judge, died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who's the commander of Jabin's army. And who's the commander of Jabin's army? It's Sisera. So there's the seed of the serpent, right? So, so Jabin, the, the Canaanites, Sisera, that's all the seed of the serpent. And the battle is raging literally. So there's enmity between the seed of the serpent, Sisera, and the seed of the woman, Deborah, the fourth judge, so Deborah sends 10,000 Israelites to fight Sisera and the Canaanites who have an unbelievably impressive army themselves, including 900 chariots of iron. But what happens? Well, chapter 4, verse 15 tells us. It says, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army. But somehow Sisera gets away. So be clear, the entire Canaanite army is destroyed. And their commander Sisera is on the run for his life. And where does he go? Well, he goes to the tent of jail. And the truth is, at this point in the story, you're kind of holding your breath. Because jail greets Sisera welcomes him into her tent, tells him not to be afraid, offers him milk to drink and a bed to rest. So you're wondering, does J.L. actually know that this is the seed of the serpent? But as soon as he falls asleep, it becomes crystal clear. Because chapter 4, verse 21 tells us, she takes a hammer and a tent peg and she drives it so far into his temple that it literally crushes his head and pins him to the ground. You're like, holy smokes, I didn't know we were doing that this morning. Yeah, yeah, we're, what a story, right, right? And you're like, is that okay? Yeah, it's okay. The seed of the woman is crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. 
And we know that because Deborah, the fourth judge, sings about it in chapter 5. Flip forward to chapter 5. Look at how she describes the event. Chapter 5, verse 26. She's singing this. Worshiping God. Singing. She says, Jael set her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the mallet. And she struck Sisera. Notice, she crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay. Do you hear that? That's imagery from the biblical authors pointing us back to Genesis chapter 3. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Between her feet he sank, he fell, and where he sank he fell, and he died. Why? Because the seed of the woman just crushed the seed of the serpent. All foreshadowing, already here in Judges 4 and 5, all foreshadowing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you just think, yeah, I think that's all just happenstance. Just the luck of the draw. Too bad for Sisera. Without a deliberate connection to Genesis 3.55. If that's what you think, then turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, page 239. The details of number two, David and Goliath, make it so clear we're talking about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, waging war with their respective champion, who stand on behalf of the people where the victory won is enjoyed not only by the representative head, but by all the people. Here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Picture the scene here, right? Israelites are camped on one side of the mountain. Philistines are on the other. These are arch enemies. Israel, Philistines, right? And there's a valley in between. And verse 4 tells us, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Do you know how big that is? That's nine and a half feet tall. Anybody have a tape measure? I have a tape measure. Look at that. <laughs> Let's do this. Nine and a half feet tall. That's 114 inches. You, you don't realize this. This is really actually hard to do. <laughs> That's 114. That's nine and a half feet tall. That's big. <laughs> so, I'm six feet two. Nine and a half feet tall. How's he dressed? Because he's not just big. How's he dressed? Completely in bronze. Scales of armor from head to toe. So the picture in your mind should be of a massive servant. He's dressed like a snake. And he's so big and he's so well armed that on earth is not his equal. Verse 16 tells us that he comes out day and night for 40 days. Look at what he says. Verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and you shall serve us. 
So he's the Philistine of Philistines. He's their champion. He's their representative head. And he's calling for the Israelites to put forward their champion, their representative head, to have a fight to the death. And whoever wins takes all. Do you see that? Crystal clear in the passage. What you need to understand is that none of the Israelites take Goliath up on his offer. And who would, right? He's nine and a half feet tall. So the Israelites hunker down on their side of the mountain, outmatched and outgunned and absolutely terrified. Until a lowly shepherd boy from Bethlehem, David, comes walking up, who, by the way, was just anointed king of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So this is King David who hears what Goliath is saying. Now, he's essentially a little boy in comparison to this massive warrior. But David immediately steps forward to fight as the representative head, as the champion of Israel. And I want you to see this for yourself. So follow along as I read Verses 42 to 51. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, notice, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? There's two reasons why this happens. Number one, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. And number two, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves. Not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life. Verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Why watch Netflix? (laughs) Right? Just read your Bible. Just read your Bible. You see how clear that is. Right, the seed of the serpent waging war against the seed of the woman. And it's King David of all people, so clearly pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, how does he win the victory as our representative head, our champion? By crushing the serpent's head. The stone sank deep into his forehead. And what's the point? David told us, so we might know there's a God in Israel and that he's a God who saves. Not 
with sword or spear, but through a salvation that he and he alone can provide. Notice how that salvation is available for all who stand with their champion. Because the Israelites immediately jump up out of their bunkers and they chase the Philistines all the way back to Gath, which is Goliath's hometown, and all the way back to their capital city. So David's victory becomes their victory. And be clear here, in case you're confused, you're not David. That's not who you are. You can read that story and you're like, that's me. That is not you. You laugh. There are so many preachers who point to David and say, that's you. You pick up your stones. You fight your big giants in your life. You are not David. Who are you in this story? You're the Israelites. You're hunkered down. You're terrified. You're afraid. You didn't do anything until your champion won the day until he slayed an enemy on earth who is not his equal. Then and only then are you victorious. Then and only then are you empowered to engage the battle. Then and only then are you enabled to stand up and fight and plunder all the way back to his hometown and his capital city. Do you hear what I'm saying? Don't be confused. So there's enmity, clearly, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman all throughout the Old Testament, all pointing forward to Jesus. And it goes right into the New Testament. I mean, we all know the story of Jesus' birth, don't we? Number three, Jesus and Herod, right? King Herod was clearly the seed of the serpent. How do we know that? Well, he was trying to kill Jesus, wasn't he? That makes him a seed of the serpent. And he murdered all the boys in Bethlehem, two years old and under, in order to prove it. But he was right in doing so as the seed of the serpent because Jesus is, number two, the ultimate seed of the woman. How do we know that? Well, first, because Jesus is God. And God promised that he would provide our salvation, not with sword or spirit, not with sword or spear, but by his own doing, through the seed of the woman. And just to confirm that, turn with me to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, page 973. I know we're bouncing around a lot, but I just want you to see this for yourself. The Bible is so crystal clear. Look at what Paul says, Galatians 3.16. Page 973, he declares, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, or seed. Now it does not say unto your offsprings, or seeds, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, your seed, who is Christ. Paul's saying Jesus is the ultimate seed of the woman. He's saying that Jesus is, is our champion. He's saying that Jesus is our Savior, provided by God to crush the seed of the serpent. How does he do that? Well, by being the second Adam. So our representative head who faces the devil, just like Adam, but rather than disobeying 
and sinning, Jesus obeys. I mean, do you understand that's what Matthew 4 is all about? Jesus squaring up against the devil in head-to-head combat, right, with Satan's age-old efforts of trying to get Jesus to question the goodness of God and the promises of God. So he's, he's tempting him just like he tempted Adam. How did he tempt him? Matthew chapter 4. If you're really the son of God, command these stones to be bred. If you're really the son of God, throw yourself off the temple, let the angels catch you. If you're really the son of God, Jesus, skip the cross. Avoid the sorrow and the suffering and just bow down right here, right now and worship me, says the devil. And I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. That's the right ends, but the wrong means. That's not what God commanded. In response, Jesus obeys where Adam sinned. And because he's our representative head, our champion, our savior, what he secures through his obedience, obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross, is ours for all eternity. And what exactly is that? It's eternal life. Flip to Romans 5. I want you to see how clear Paul is on this point, connecting Adam to Jesus. We'll pick it up in verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, That's Adam. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Notice who was a type of the one to come, namely Jesus. Adam is a type of Christ. How? By being our representative head. That's why we're sinners in Adam. So as a result of Adam's sin, we became sinners, and we sin because we're sinners, and the wages of sin is death, eternal death away from the Lord. That's absolutely necessary so that when we put our faith in Christ, we get all the benefits of being in our new representative head, our new champion, our new Savior. That's Paul's point, verse 18. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, notice for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's sin, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus' life and death on the cross, the many will be made righteous. That happens ultimately through the cross. That's where Jesus, see, delivers the mortal blow, ultimately crushing Satan's head and defeating sin, death, and the devil. All of that happens when he dies on the cross and declares that glorious victory cry, it is finished. How do we know that? Well, because Jesus told us. John 12, Jesus says, verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be thrown down, cast out, destroyed, and defeated. And I, when I, not if, but when. That's a promise. When I am lifted up, that's the cross, then I will draw all people to myself. Jesus clearly declares that he will deliver the mortal blow at the cross. That as our representative head, our champion, our savior, he will crush Satan's head through his death, burial, and resurrection. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And as a result, make salvation available to everyone. And not only salvation, it's not just salvation, but the power to live for the glory of God, even unto death. Flip forward with me. One more passage before we go to application. Revelation chapter 12. See, I told you. Genesis to Revelation. Page 1034. Revelation chapter 12. Follow along as I read verses 7 to 11. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Notice the description. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Why? Because the accuser of our brothers is thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him. How have they conquered him? By the blood of the Lamb. That's the cross. That's when Satan was defeated. But now look at this, because John says, and by the word of their testimony, for they, who's the they? It's the church. It's the people of God, the ones who have united themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, whose victory is their victory. What does John say about us? He says, for they love their lives not even unto death. Which brings us to number three, the application of this glorious promise. Twelve reasons Jesus came to die. Number one, to crush Satan's head. That's the promise that we've been given all the way back in Genesis 3.15, that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, That ultimately the devil will bruise Jesus on the heel, but Jesus will crush his head and deliver that mortal blow. Why does that matter? Because that's the only way, A, to secure salvation for all who believe. I mean, sin's the problem, right? Sin is what separated Adam and Eve from God, and sin is what separates us from God. So the devil's got this great argument. He's got this great accusation that no one deserves to be in God's presence for all eternity. Why? Because we've all sinned, and we've always fallen short of the glory of God. 
That's why I asked you earlier, what do you do when you're in way over your head, when you're outmatched and you're outgunned? What do you do? You have no choice. You have got to look outside of yourself. Don't you see? Jesus Christ faced the seemingly invincible enemy and he fought him on our behalf, doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, securing our souls for all eternity. And how did he do it? By being our champion, our savior, our representative head, with a heart after God's own heart and a passion for God's glory, seen most clearly in his obedience, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the ultimate battlefield, isn't it? The cross of Calvary, where Jesus bore our sin where Jesus paid our debt, where Jesus crushed Satan's head and secured our salvation, not with a sword or a spear, but through the unlikely means of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And he rose victorious on the third day and now offers that victory to anyone who believes in him. So if you're here this morning, and you're not trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life, listen to me when I say, then you have no champion to fight your battle. Right? You, you, you have no savior to pay for your sin. You have no representative head to take your place, die your death, or declare you righteous before God for all eternity. In fact, let me just ask you, Are you so proud this morning to think that on your own you can take on an enemy like the devil and win? That's not just arrogant. That's foolish. Martin Luther said, on earth is not his equal. So I'm appealing to you That's what I'm doing. I'm appealing to you to recognize that you're outmatched and you're outgunned. I want you to see that if you stand outside of Christ, then you're in big trouble. There's no chance for victory. If you take on the devil on your own, you're in way over your head. Only Jesus can beat this guy. Only Jesus has beat this guy. And all you need this morning is two things to believe in Jesus. You need to know the promise was given Genesis 3.15. He will crush his head. And his death, burial, and resurrection. Right? That's all you need. Dear unbeliever, you don't need more information. You have the promise of God and you have its fulfillment. And the only reason that you would sit there this morning and remain unbelieving 
is your pride and your foolishness. You're outmatched. You're outgunned. I plead with you, look outside of yourself to our champion, our representative head, our savior. Repent, believe, be saved, and live for the glory of God, knowing that you've been empowered to do so. Right? You need to understand this morning, dear believer, that the battle is still raging, isn't it? Right? Enmity still exists. That's why we went through Ephesians. Ephesians 6 said, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that we might stand against the schemes of the devil. What does that look like? Well, according to Revelation 12, it looks like declaring the word of our testimony and not loving our lives even unto death. How is that possible? Well, I would suggest it's only possible when we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the outcome is secure. Right? When we know that we will be resurrected. When we know that we will be in his presence for all eternity. That we know our victory is already secured because he crushed his head. And we're with him. Right? We don't stand on our own. Right? What do we do? We stand with him. Our victory is in Jesus. And that's what we declare. That's the word of our testimony. And the ability to know that when you die, you will be in his presence for all eternity, that there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. When you know that with such certainty, you can declare that testimony even unto death. He crushed Satan's head to secure your salvation and to empower you to live for the glory of God. May God give us the grace to grab a hold of Genesis 3.15 and its promise and live for the glory of God even unto death. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're grateful for your word. Father, we're grateful for the entirety of your word. Genesis to Revelation, all pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is ours through his death, burial, and resurrection, him crushing sin, death, and the devil, that we might have life that we might be empowered to live for his glory. Father, I pray that we would know that truth. I pray that it would be so crystal clear in our minds, that it would be pressed down into our hearts, that we would be filled up and overflowing with the desire, the privilege, the opportunity to declare the word of our testimony and to live our lives for the glory of God even unto death. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name.
Amen.